In nomine Patri, Ifili, Spiritus Sancti, Amen. Um, a brief apology for my more casual attire in this episode. Um, suffice to say, I'm currently in an exotic location, which, like everywhere else in the world, still has its winters. Um, so I'm going to have to try and dress up warm just so I can still pay attention. Um, the other thing to say is that, so this is a continuation of an introduction to the life of devotion by St. Francis de Sales. Um, it's a book about spiritual instruction, but I am not a spiritual teacher. Um, if you want to find a spiritual teacher, i.e. a good priest, the best place to look would be the Lux Vera directory, which I'll provide a link to in the description. So anyway, let's continue. In this section, St. Francis is talking about, he's continuing with the subject of prayer and putting yourself in the right mental setting. In the last episode, at the end, we talked about how you can place yourself in the presence of God in a number of different ways. Now he's talking about reflecting on mysteries, and this is obviously something that we do during the rosary in particular. So, for example, we have the joyful, the sorrowful and the glorious mysteries to reflect on, and there are five of each, um, all to do with the lives of Jesus and Mary. And he's giving a recommendation on what to do when preparing yourself to pray in or through the mysteries. This is no other thing than to represent to the imagination the scene of the mystery upon which one is meditating, as though it were actually taking place in our presence. For example, if you wish to meditate upon our Saviour on the cross, you would imagine yourself to be on Mount Calvary, and that you see there all that was done and said on the day of the Passion, or, if you will, for it is all one, you will imagine that the crucifixion is taking place in the very spot where you are, in the way described by the evangelists. So that seems pretty straightforward, right? If you're struggling to know what to do during a reflection or a meditation, simply place yourself within the scene. Every meditation is a scene um, from the life of our Lord and Lady. And so if we just place ourselves there, then that's the best way to anchor ourselves and the main way to. He goes on. Now, by means of this imaginary scene, we confine our spirit within the mystery upon which we intend to meditate so that it may not range hither and thither. And that's important because arguably the bigger picture of meditating on a mystery is to reflect on not only the life and action of our Lord and Lady, but what the significance of those events were and then what we can learn from them in terms of the virtues we need to emulate, the uh, sacrifices we need to appreciate, all of that kind of stuff. Now you could say, yeah, but couldn't I just reflect on how much of a sacrifice our Lord made and that would be valid? And the answer is yes, in some way that is valid. But the point is, is that unless you place yourself inside the scene, there's more of a chance that, you know, you start reflecting on, say, the sacrifice of the passion. But then your mind gets moved to one place and then another, and then maybe you're thinking about something else. And so the idea is that placing yourself mentally within the scene anchors you there and therefore anchors you to think and ingest everything else that's going on in terms of its significance. So now he's talking about the considerations to make during meditation. After the action of the imagination follows the action of the understanding, which we call meditation. So that's important, right? The actual understanding bit 
understanding and grasping the significance of what you're meditating upon is the meditation bit. If you're not doing that, you're not really meditating. So after the action of the imagination follows the action of the understanding, which we call meditation, which is no other thing than one of many considerations made in order to start our affections towards God and divine things. So that goes back to what we just said, right? You could, if you're simply stirring up your mind and your heart and your considerations towards God and the things he wants you to think about, you are meditating. But again, you've got to be careful. If you don't anchor yourself perhaps in the scene, then your efforts to do that are going to go astray. But ultimately, if you have a broader view of what meditation is, it's doing that. It's bringing your understanding and your consideration in line with God, his actions, his intentions, all that kind of stuff. Okay, now what he's talking about is the affections that we have, or um, the resolutions is the most important word within this. The resolutions that we have for our meditations. And these are what complete the meditations. Without these, they don't really have any real value. I'll explain why. However, Philo Thayer, you must not dwell upon these general affections to such an extent that you omit to convert them into special and particular resolutions for your correction and amendment. So he's talking about receiving affections or desires or inclinations is probably a, a more um, vernacular word that we would use. Inclinations that we gain from these meditations and then converting them into resolutions. And then finally, most importantly, living by them. So what does that all mean? Well, very simply, imagine, for example, that you're meditating on the first mystery of the Rosary, the Annunciation, where the angel Gabriel tells Our Lady that she will give birth to Our Lord. And arguably one of the main virtues that is um, exemplified in that mystery is the virtue of humility. Right? Our Lady is welcoming whatever may come. To happen to her right she's just putting herself at the mercy of god's will so she's exemplifying the virtue of humility so what are the three stages that we've now gone through that he's talked about well first you imagine yourself in that scene right as if you're standing between the angel gabriel and our lady and seeing how the angel speaks to her and how she reacts right and by doing that we place ourselves in the scene we imbibe what's going on there and we get the example of her action in front of our mind, right? That beautiful action of humility that she gives. And then what would happen? Well, maybe we, that stirs up an affection in us. Maybe we not only appreciate what she's done and the significance that's, that's going to have for everything, basically, you know, including our salvation. But then that stirs up the affection in us to emulate her, right? To think, well, I want to be humble as well. So that's where the meditation is leading us to, that desire to be as humble as she is and now what saint francis is saying is take that um, affection take that inclination that it's stirring up in you and form it into a resolution okay she's shown me that i should be humble how can i act like that in my own life how in my own life do i have chances to give way to the will of god and submit myself to whatever he will do to me um and so you resolve to say, OK, whatever chance I get, I am going to do that. I am going to submit to his will when that chance arises. 
And then finally, you solidify that by actually doing it, right? When the chance does arrive, boom, try and make sure that you do um, be humble then. And then the meditation has borne the fruit that it was meant to. So there you have the three stages or four, if you like, that complete the value of the, of the meditation, that, that allow it to bear its fruit. So I hope that's all clear. Yeah, so he now just kind of hammers home that point. Above all things, Philothea, when you quit and finish your meditation, bear in mind the resolutions and intentions which you have formed in order to practice them carefully during the day. For example, if I have resolved to win by gentleness the hearts of those who offend me, I will seek that very day an opportunity of meeting them in order to greet them amicably. If I fail to meet them, I will at least try to speak well of them and pray to God on their behalf. So that adds a little extra part to it, I suppose. I, I always give an example of, you know, where if, you, if you're given the chance to be humble during a day, you should take it. Now he's given the example of, I get the chance to be kind, basically. I should take that. But then he's kind of said that even if I don't get the chance, I've, I've kind of made my own chance, right? By praying to God in that manner. So he didn't get the chance to be kind to someone face to face, but he said, well, okay, instead of that, I found an opportunity to be kind to them in prayer at the very least, right? And so just take that in mind, take that principle and perhaps apply it to all of the uh, good resolutions and virtues that we can take away from our meditations. Now, aside from meditative prayer, um, St. Francis is really going to emphasise the value of our morning and evening prayers. And he just gives basically some instructions to these. So I'm just going to read them out. He gives a series of free instructions to follow when we make our morning prayers. So this is at the start of our day, right? Firstly, thank God and adore him profoundly for the favour he has done you, preserving you during the past night. So it's just a brief reflection on saying, basically, thank you for keeping me alive to serve you another day, basically. Two, consider that the present day is given you, that in it you may gain the future day of eternity, and make a firm resolution to employ that day well for this intention. Um, that has a profound weight of significance to it, right? Which seems like it takes some time to really wrap our head, heads around. Um, every single day is given to us so that we can earn the joy and bliss of eternity. Um, it all ties into that idea that God constantly gives and we do not give back in each equal, equal measure we cannot he gives us the very life that we have in our being the very air that we breathe um, and so every new day is a gift from him but then of course those days are not to spend or squander on our own behalf and for our own selfish pride they are all 
to return to him and for his love. And so everything we have in the day is by justice his. And so he's just inviting us to keep that in the forefront of our minds when we start when we start our morning. Three, or thirdly, forecast what affairs, what intercourse and what occasions you may meet with during the day to serve God and what temptations may befall you to offend him. I understand there's a lot of families I know with, say, loads of kids, and they might not have time to, say, sit there and stoically meditate on all of the things that are going to happen to them during the day. They might not even have chance a lot of the time to sit down and do these two things. I don't know, I'm not going to speak on their behalf, but I understand how busy people are. But in any case, if you're not too busy, he's saying that forecast what affairs and occasions you're going to have to either serve God and what temptations may arise where you might offend him. So basically just plan ahead briefly, you know, what situations am I going to encounter? Um, if I'm going to, let's say it's a Friday morning and you know you're going to be invited out for drinks in the evening. You think, OK, well, that's going to be an occasion for sin if I'm tempted to get drunk or something like that. So how am I going to handle that ahead of time? Am I going to cancel my plans? Am I going to limit my time frame? Am I going to ask God for help? I probably should ask God for help straight away in dealing with that with that situation. So have some forethought about it. Um, have I got work to do for the day? Um, can I use those occasions to offer them to, our, to my Lord and give my day up to him and as a way to serve him? Right. These are things that you can think of beforehand so that they're more likely to be in your mind when you have to deal with them. Fourthly, this done, humble yourself before God, acknowledging that of yourself you can do nothing of that which you have deliberated, be it to avoid evil or to, or to do good. So basically it's just saying, he's just saying, you can make those resolutions and plans for how to deal with your day, but just humble yourself before God, accepting that you're going to need his help for all of it whether it's to do good or avoid evil. So he's now just, he's given his instructions and he's capping it off. All of these spiritual actions should be done briefly and fervently before you leave your room, if possible, so that by means of this exercise, all that you have done throughout the day may be watered with the blessing of God and I beg of you, Father Thayer, never to fail herein. So he's really stressing how important he thinks his practice is for the life of devotion to um, begin and anchor your day in this way. And he's saying that it's, it's kind of like allowing God to water your day, right? to add that little spiritual blessing. And again, to anchor your own attention to what your anchor your own attention to what your intentions are for the day. So that they're more likely to stay with you. And then he also had said, make sure they're brief and fervent. Don't overthink it. Don't over explain it. Just make sure you do the most important parts of your prayer as sincerely and honestly as possible. Um, again, it's that recurring thing that a simple prayer said well is a hundred times better than a complicated prayer 
um, said, um, what's the best word? Frivolously. Yeah. A simple prayer said well is worth a thousand prayers said frivolously. And so there's no need to over embellish all of our morning prayers um, or any of our prayers for that matter. Just make sure they're honest and fervent. Um, and indeed, if you do over embellish them, you know, if you spend two hours doing your morning prayers. If that gets in the way of your duties, like you do actually have other things to do, that in itself causes a problem as well, right? It goes back to that conversation we had about every person needing to perform their proper station. If you are indeed a parent and you need to get up and start helping and feeding your kids, if you are not doing that because you're spending too much time on your morning prayers, that is a problem for the duties you need to perform. So now, if those were the four recommendations or the, the rules recommended for our morning prayers, he now gives a set of instructions for how to approach our evening prayers. As to the examination of conscience, which is what we do in the evening, which should always be made before going to bed, everyone knows how it should be done. Well, in better times, right, when everyone was properly Catholic, but crazy days. Anyway. For us who still need to be properly catechized, here are the instructions. One, we thank God for having preserved us during the past day. So similar to having preserved us during the night, he's also allowed us enough time during the day to not die and carry on. Two, we examine how we have behaved ourselves during all hours of the day. So the examination of conscience is about thinking back through and Checking your work, basically. Checking over your moral work of the day. What did I do right? What did I do wrong? Three. If we find that we have done any good, we thank God for it. If, on the other hand, we have done any evil in thought, word or deed, we ask pardon of his divine majesty with a, re with a resolution to confess it at the first opportunity and carefully to amend it. I think a lot of this stuff is fairly self-explanatory. You know, we thank God for our good because all good ultimately comes from God, not from ourselves. That's a matter of pride. So we thank God for the good that we've done and we say sorry for the evil that we've done, asking for his pardon and being resolute that the next time that we do our, we also often do an examination of conscience to prepare us for the sacrament of confession. Because by doing this, we already keep in our mind the things that we need to confess so that that can be handed over during the sacrament. Four, after that, we commend to the care of divine providence, providence, our body, our soul, the church, our relation and our friends. And then he goes on to say, this exercise, like that of the morning, must never be forgotten. So he's really emphasising again how important this is. Um, it seems like there's three things that he's really emphasised so far. First of all, find a good spiritual teacher. That was the admonition of admonitions. 
And then he's also saying that we cannot forget to do our morning prayers and we cannot forget to do our examination of conscience and our evening prayers. So we've moved away from that now and we're going to talk about some different topics. St. Francis says, Blesses, bless, sorry. Blessed is the soul that can truly say to our Lord, Thou art my house of refuge, my security, my covert from the rain, and my shade from the heat. I found this a tricky passage to reflect on, not because it's wrong, but because of my own visceral, visceral reaction to it. Which is not a good reaction, but it's worth um, being honest about, hopefully for the benefit of other people's reflection as well. Blessed is the soul that can truly say to our Lord, Thou art my house of refuge, my security, my covert from the rain, and my shade from the heat. I don't feel that way about God yet, um, about Jesus Christ. And I'll explain why. And again, I'm wrong because the saints will feel this way. Um, I think because of, you know, my, my priest once said to me that a lot of Catholics, especially of the more traditional type, make the consistent mistake of picturing God as if he's a policeman with a truncheon, ready to whack you around the head every time you do something wrong. Uh, you know, very stern and severe and harsh in, in that way. And he said that's the that's an immature way to approach God. Christ called him Abba, Father, and the word Abba is like it's not Father, it's like Daddy, in the English language, right, or Papa. It's way more intimate and it's way more um, warm and friendly than the image of a, a magistrate or a police officer that we might see. I, as a fault, probably see the police officer more than I should do. Um, I pay too much attention to... His, his displeasure at all the things that I am and will do wrong. And that's, it's got a, obviously there's a, there's a sense in that because we should keep in mind that we're offending God when we do things wrong. Um, but the mistake that's probably making is that I'm not then appreciating the other side of the coin, which is that God um, disdains all the wrong that I do because he loves me dearly. Um, and wants the best for me and that is imbued um, with depths of affection that I probably can't even comprehend so the idea that he is my house of refuge like this warm home that I can come to my security my cover from the rain and my shade from the heat is probably also a degree of ingratitude as well um, like I pay enough attention to the difficulties of life and the mistakes that I make, but perhaps don't pay enough attention to all of the damage and horror that I have indeed been protected from up until this point. You know, 
if I think my life is bad enough as it is, then how bad would it be if he was no part of it at all? Um, to the degree that I have genuine refuge, it must come from him. So if I don't realise that, again, it's just a sign of in, in spiritual immaturity in that respect. So, yeah, it was a, it was a passage that was pause for thought. We retire to God because we aspire to him, and we aspire to him in order to retire to him. So that aspiration to God and spiritual retirement mutually support one another and both proceed and both proceed from and are born of the same thoughts, of good thoughts. Aspire then very often to God, Philothea, by short but ardent movements of your heart. It ties into the topic again. Um, when we're told that we're going to have an eternity of bliss in heaven, where do we think that bliss is going to come from? It's going to come from God. Um, when we're aspiring to anything, when we're aspiring to our own good, we're aspiring to him. So he is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the, the totality of the story, basically. And for us to be complete, we have to just basically always keep that in mind. Um, he is our final rest. And that's why we aspire to him. To the degree that we aspire to peace and bliss and rest, we aspire to him. And again, I think that ties into this idea of why thinking of him as a judge or a severe magistrate is such a bad idea. Because a police officer who's ready to whack you over the head is not a you know if that was a place it wouldn't be a place of rest right a judgment judgment is a is an intermediary occasion judgment is something that we're going to pass through and then hopefully after that we go into life of bliss um but it's not what that life the life isn't going to that life isn't going to be having that truncheon hanging over our head for that whole time. So we have to keep that in mind. And again, we're not going to see the warmth behind or the warmth in front of us. Unless we appreciate that. So aspire then very often to God, Philothea, by short but ardent movements of the heart. Again, simple but honest. If we keep just offering up our intentions, our thoughts, keep reminding us, keep offering them up to God, we keep reminding ourselves that he's there. That is how we keep our aspirations fixed and thrown towards him. Here's something very important. I want to emphasize again that all of this instruction applies to every walk of life. And one of the things I wanted to emphasize in the first episode, but didn't do enough, was the fact that sainthood isn't relegated to people who live religious. In that context, I mean um, the life of people like clerics and deacons and bishops. Sainthood isn't relegated to priests, monks, nuns and bishops. Most saints seem to be those people because they're the ones who are written about 
and there are interesting historical reasons for that. For example, most people who wrote and read back in those days were monks and nuns, right? Um, but we shouldn't forget the swathes and swathes of people who were otherwise who were otherwise saints, but were just unsung, right? Whether they be fathers, mothers, soldiers, blacksmiths, postmen, you name it. Devotion, and therefore sainthood, because that is what devotion is. The life of devotion is the path towards sainthood. They're all the same thing, right? Sainthood applies to all walks of life. Devotion applies to all walks of life. And so no matter what we're doing, no matter what we're called to do, no matter who we're called to be, we can be devout and we can become saints. So of the exercise he just spoke of, you know, that throwing our attentions toward, uh, our aspirations toward God. This exercise is not difficult, for it can be interwoven with all our affairs and occupations without any detriment to them whatsoever. Inasmuch as both in spiritual retirement and in these interior movements, we only make little and short digressions, which do not hinder us in any way, but greatly help us to carry out whatever we are doing. Okay. Very simple. Imagine you're there, at, um, uh, in a workshop, like carving away at a piece of wood, and you've got to really give your attention to the blade and where it's cutting and all the intricacies if you're making like some kind of beautiful uh, cabinet or sculpture or whatever. And you might think, okay, so where in this busy day of building a hundred bits of furniture and carving the wood and having to really pay attention to everything do I have time to 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 live the life of devotion very simple is like well if you've just stopped cutting for five seconds use that five seconds to say hello to God offer the work you're doing to him and remind yourself that he's there and then continue your work right um there are always those little pockets and bubbles of time during the day in our attention maybe you're also doing something very mundane and it doesn't need you to think right Maybe you're just simply sweeping a floor. Well, while you're sweeping that floor, if you're thinking about the shopping or what you just saw on TV last night, then there's a little space there for you to also think about God, his, his presence and his intentions. So those are just a couple of simple suggestions for how these things can be brought in. Of the person who does this, St. Francis says, he only halts in order to go on the better. And that is an echo of something he said, I think, during the first um, episode or session, where he said that the life of devotion, again, it never detracts from everything, anything that we're doing. It can only improve. Offering our lives to God can only improve them, right? Like... That idea of adding salt to things only brings out the flavour. Um, though unlike salt, you can't overdo it. There's another beautiful thing about it. So we only halt in order to go on the better. The idea is that, again, God is no less than goodness, beauty, truth and perfection himself, right? So the more we bring him into our life, the more we bring perfection itself into our lives, right? So we can see how all of these things amplify each other, how his presence would amplify the value and beauty of everything that we're doing.
Behold, Father Thayer, how one may draw good thoughts and holy aspirations from whatever presents itself amid the changes of this mortal life. Unhappy are they who turn creatures away from their Creator to make them turn towards sin. Blessed are they who turn creatures to the, to the glory of their Creator and make use of their vanity to the honour of the truth. So this speaks to a bunch of different things at the same time. Blessed are they who turn creatures to the glory of their creator and make use of their vanity to the honor of the truth. Okay, so on that very last note, he's speaking to that kind of divine practice of making even bad things good. Um, I can't remember who explained that to me, but one of the ideas of one of the proofs of God's ultimate goodness and perfection is that he can even take evil and turn it into something good. And we saw that with the act of the redemption, right? He took the fall of man and the existence of death, and he used that to redeem us and give us eternal salvation. So that's just one example of how his goodness can overcome, overcome evil by making good out of it, right? That's the profundity. And we're invited to do a very small version of that in our own lives, where if we're invariably going to sin, or we have our sins, we can still use those as opportunities to learn and grow and develop and overcome, right? So if we do make our mistakes, use their vanity to the honour of the truth. Let me uh, take a second to just read around this to get a clearer idea of what this means. Okay, it's an odd passage to digest. And I think because the use of the word vanity is not clear in the way that we usually understand it. But in the surrounding passages, he's giving examples of how many different saints can see the work of God in basically everything that he's created. The word creatures in this in this sense are not what we usually think of. Like we usually think of creatures as simply being like rabbits and humans and angels, right? So like moving, talking, sentient things that God's created. But the ultimate actual proper theological meaning of creature is anything that's been created by God, right? And so that includes like a, a mountain is a creature, so is a forest, a stream. Um the constants of the physical laws are all creatures in, in some respect. So he's giving examples of how many different saints have taken different parts of God's creation and keeps using them and keeps throwing them back and keeps pointing them back towards God, right? So whether we see a stream or uh, a rose or a sunset, we can keep using these to recognize the echoes and the, and the word of God's beautiful creation, right? And realizing that they are for his glory. And so what he said in this passage, unhappy are they who turn creatures away from their creator to make them turn towards sin. In that case, there are two things, right? 
unhappy are those who turn creatures who can sin towards sin, right? So if you, for example, uh, entice your friends to temptation or get them to, to sin, uh, that's a sorry state to be in. But to turn creatures away from their creator, right? To take the rose and remove it from the hands of God. To venerate the mountain but don't appreciate where the mountain came from. That's also an, an unhappy state to be in. Um, God is singing, singing to us through creation and it's a hollow song if we don't allow it to reverberate and echo back to him this is an interesting passage this is a completely different topic now there is ever more good and consolation in the public offices of the church than in what is done individually. God having so ordained that what is done in common should be preferred to every kind of individual action. Christianity is a social religion, not socialist. I understand where people might get their back up at that idea. But we're in this together as a uh, well, as a family of people, I suppose, in many different ways, but certainly as a community. And he wants us to live and love and help and work with one another. He doesn't want any of us to be completely isolated or go at this as if we're simply islands floating around towards heaven. So God has ordained that he prefers us to do things in common than, or at as shared actions and, and as opposed to just merely individual actions. If you can say your morning prayers, try and do them with more than one person. Uh, examination of conscience maybe has to be done alone. Speak to a priest about that. Um, but certainly rosaries, for example, are, are a very good example. Mass is a great example. But rosaries, again, I remember reading in the book by um, Saint-Louis Montfort, that the way he put it was that let's say that you're in a room with 10 people and all of you are play, praying the rosary. It's as if you have all prayed 10 rosaries each. Okay. So it's not just like you have one rosary each that's spread or 10 rosaries spread between the 10 of you such that you have one each. But he actually said as, it's as if it's an amplifier, right? So you've all now said 10 rosaries because you've all said it as a group of 10 people. Um, so, yeah, I don't think there's much more really to say about that. If you can do any of your spiritual practices with another person or in a group of people, it is highly recommended. And then obviously there's our old adage, isn't there? Like a family that prays together stays together. I suppose that just adds a little bit of spark to that flame. Huh. This is a cool passage. Blessed Ignatius. Coming one day from Germany, where he had done great works for the glory of our Lord, 
passing through this diocese in which he was born, related that whilst travelling many heretical whilst travelling many heretical places, he had received a thousand consolations by saluting the angel guardian of each parish as he approached it, and that he had been conscious of their help. There's just so many dimensions to Catholicism that it's so hard to keep track of it all. Don't forget the angels, right? They exist. Um, every one of us has a guardian angel. Um, to my limited understanding, there are also angels uh, for yeah, places. Every church can have an angel. Um, houses, so there can be, uh, you can have like an eight, a guardian angel for each member of your family but if i'm correct like a building can have its own angel as well watching over that um in this case you've got each parish has an angel um so angels watching over dioceses they're just they're all over the shop and they're obviously they're all they're all part of the church right they're part of the church um i think they're part of the church triumphant aren't they and they are there to help. That is us completely and totally. Their whole ambition and, and duty is to help us on the path to salvation. And so just remember that they're there. Ask for their help. Uh, say hello. Um, give your appreciation. And see if they can see what they can do for you. I mean, one of the practices that um, I think is really worth keeping in mind is just giving a little hello and a thank you and can you help me to your guardian angel every day um so yeah don't forget that they're there that's, that's so cool it's so cool to be reminded of that so now he's talking about the presence of the saints as well um because again they're there to help right and what he's saying now is we should never forget that there's the church militant down here and the church triumphant, but we're all still working in the ultimate goal of serving God for our salvation. So he's now talking about calling upon the help of the saints. Choose some particular saints whose lives you can best appreciate and imitate and in whose intercession you have a special confidence. The saint whose name you bear has already been the saint whose name you bear has already been assigned to you at your baptism, which is a, a, one of particular interest to most people. So, yeah, if um, whatever you're doing in life, there's been a saint which has become its patron. Ask for their help as well. Um, intercession 101 is just the idea that having someone pray for you does help to some degree. Everyone knows this. All Protestants know this. All of the Eastern Orthodox know this. Um, for some reason, they just uh, the Protestants, for example, get hung up on the idea that this applies to the spiritual realm as well as the people around us. But it's exactly the same principle. Um, if uh, if Saint John still exists, it, there's no reason why you can't ask him to pray for you, and why that wouldn't have the same benefit as asking your sister to pray for you if she's standing right there in the same room. Um, so yeah, the saints are there, um, and if there's a particular thing you need to do, why not find the saint who is the patron of that and ask for their help, right? If you're about to go into battle, you can call upon St. Michael. Um, 
I'm not very good with knowing the saints and their patronage. I do apologise. You know, if you need to do some farming, ask, find the patron saint of farmers. If you are having problems with your marriage, ask, speak to the patron saints of marriage. Um, if you need to write a book, you can speak to St. Francis de Sales because he is the patron saint of writers. So, yeah, again, it's another beautiful broadening element to the Catholic Church um, that we should appreciate and make use of, for sure. Okay, so moving forward, we're moving into fairly different topics now, and they, they take a while to go into. But I'm conscious of the time for this session, so I'm going to finish there, and hope to see you for the next reading. Thank you very much for your time.